plenty on the radio today from the gay liberation front of the 60s to portion control at Christmas and keeping your houseplants alive. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. He called her every name under the sun she could. Um, And he then opened her car door and spat on her. Even the other day I was in the supermarket and there was a special offer, a tin of sweets, which in my day, and I'm not a hundred, but we got the tin of, it was roses at the time, it was made of tin and you got the tin of roses and as far as I know you had one tin in the house and I saw in one of the supermarkets they were on sale for 2 50 The psychiatrist was saying to me that um, I believe you're, you're a lesbian. Yeah. He wanted to send me for lobotomy. Oh, I ran out. A lobotomy? Yep, I ran out of it. I said, what's that? I didn't even know what it was. And we'll start in the afternoon. Marie called Joe about an incident that happened to her mother while out driving. Yeah, so she was caught in traffic yesterday mm-hmm. and she just happened to pull in front of this car. I think there had been a traffic jam for a few hours. Okay. Um, and she said this man behind her started beeping at her, gesturing at her. And he proceeded then to get out of his car. He mm-hmm. screamed profanities at her uh, tried to elbow her car window and what you mean he, he was then, at, he was using the F word and the B word and the he called her every name under the sun oh, okay. she said um, oh, and he then opened her car door and spat on her and where where did the spittle land up um, it went on her she said my god yeah. and were you saying he was elbowing the window yeah, elbowing her, we'll say, you know, the driver's window. He was elbowing, trying to get in, she thinks, yeah. And, like, what, what, have you any idea, or is your mother any idea? I know she's still dreadfully upset, and why wouldn't she be? But was she any idea what he was on about? I think there had been some something on the motorway that morning, and people had been stuck in traffic yeah, but that wasn't. But yeah, but that wasn't your mother's fault. It wasn't, but I don't know, was it just the thing that tipped him over the edge that she had pulled in in front of him? I have no idea, but... And what age group was this man? She thinks he was in his 40s. Like, my mum is in her mid-60s. She's a grandmother of two. She's a small, petite woman. And this man screaming at her and then spat at her. And what what size was he? What height was he insofar as? I think she said he was kind of average height, medium build. Okay, so um, so a youngish man. Uh, yeah. Full of strength and uh, yeah. bravado, obviously. Um, now, spitting at somebody is bad at the best of times. Spitting yeah. at somebody in a pandemic is a pretty serious events offence. It we, is. It's I, shocking. We've, we've dug out two cases, right? And one judge, in fairness, pointed out that when you spit at somebody during a pandemic, you're not only affecting the person that's been spat at, you're affecting their whole family because their whole family yeah. might be in trouble if there's COVID in that spittle and that's one of the ways it is transmitted. Yeah. So we spat at your mother, which is, yeah. which is uh, despicable. Another... Another judge um, said that in this case, uh, the the defendant uh, spat at a garda uh, on the right hand side of his forehead, narrowly missing his eyes. 
And yeah. uh, as a result of that, the Garda and his family had to isolate because this woman was shouting, I have the virus, I have the virus, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, so how is your mother today? She's still very shaken. Do you know, like, it's his behaviour. I don't know, does this man think that that's acceptable? Because it says an awful lot about him if that's the way that he behaves. Did your mother go to the Gardaí? My mum, like, she's not a confrontational person. Yeah, she, didn't, she didn't want to make a fuss, but we said to her, even just ring them and see. And she rang our local guard station. In fairness, she said they were very, very nice. But they said there wasn't a whole lot that they could do. It would be a very drawn-out affair. She'd have to make a statement. They'd yeah. have to go to court. Yeah. It would, could be months waiting to be yeah. heard. And, she, and then at the end of it, she said it's simply his word against hers. Well, a lot of cases are. That's why we have juries and that's why we have judges, learned judges. It is normally yeah. one person's word against the other and then the judge or a jury makes uh, makes a decision on the balance of probabilities. Do you believe yeah. your do you believe your mother? Yes, 100%. Yeah, she, why would you make uh, something like exactly. that? Exactly. How soon after this incident did your mother contact you? My sister texted me and honestly I thought she was making it up. I said that's not possible. Like that doesn't happen. Yeah. She said no. It has happened. She's very shaken by it. And did she ring somebody? Was she able to ring somebody immediately after it happened that she was stuck in traffic? No, she pulled in. She got off the motorway at the next exit and she had to sit in her car for a bit and just... Gather herself. Yeah. And say to herself, did that really happen? Did a grown grown man in traffic, uh, chaos, which, and even if you were, what's what's the problem? These things happen. And it, but, it was, but she wasn't. If a grown man in a traffic jam that everyone was enduring starts yeah. banging on my window with his elbow, starts effing and being and seeing out of him towards me, who we could see in the car. It's not as if we didn't know who was in the car. And you say your yeah. mother is a small woman and, she, and she's a grandmother, which is still uh, quite young. And um, he opened the door and he spat at her. And did your mother manage to say anything to him? She didn't say anything, but then he got back into his car. Okay. He then cut out and cut back in front of her and started zigzagging and breaking and kind of wouldn't let her pass. What was he at? And Marie's mother had the wherewithal to take the registration of the car. She got his registration and we well were able to well, find out who oh. this man is. Oh, go on. Well, don't tell us his name, obviously. No, no. no and how did, you, how did you find out who he was? You, because I think there was a logo as well on the car. Like, it, okay. it was a business. And as your mother matched the photographs or whatever on that website or Facebook to what to the man she saw? Yeah, we could wow. go on wow. to the website and she picked him out straight away and he's the managing director, so... Nothing is going to come of it, even if we were to Why ring him. Why is nothing going to come of it? Let the, if that man knows who he is, which he does, maybe he's not listening, but he should at least apologise to your mother. Well, that's the very least that he should do. But I, someone like that who would spit at somebody, I would have to question even what kind of a person he is or his own morals. So I wouldn't hold out much hope of getting an apology. So you know who he is. Well, your mother knows 
has identified who she believes it is. It, yeah. it 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 coincides with a logo on the on the car. She has the reg number, which is which is yeah. pretty conclusive, especially for a guard investigation. And now, yeah. is your is your now that your mother you said he's an MD of a company and she hasn't got a hope. Is that what your mother yeah. thinks? What's the point in taking this man on? She just she said it herself. She's not. She doesn't think she would be strong enough to face him. She said she would yeah. be scared to meet him in a courtroom. She doesn't ever want to see him again. Yeah. And she was very worried that even he would take her reg down and maybe be able to find her. Oh That's how God. afraid no, she yeah, was. Yeah. Would she give the reg number to the guardie? Is that too much I, pressure? I just... I well, think, let, let, her, let her think about it. Yeah, like because I, I do believe, wants- and it's there's two court cases I'm after we're after finding in the last few months, where spitting at somebody. In this case is, is it was the guardy spitting at somebody in a pandemic that is spread by spittle and aerosols, and in the air is just it's a crime. It is a crime. Yeah. How do now? I'm not don't don't put your mother crossways or whatever or upset her more than she's already upset. But this man should at least contact the family if, if he knows who he is or contact us or whatever and say, well, I'm sorry. And by the way, I don't have COVID. So there's nothing for that woman to be worried about, at least. Yeah. What she's enough I to be worried about. I would hope by ringing in, even, you know, even maybe the man himself might hear this and feel sorry for what he's done or feel a sense hmm. of shame or that maybe somebody out there like starts a conversation this evening like oh I heard this on the radio isn't yeah, that awful no, people just have to grin and bear it when we all make mistakes driving and, and by the way there's no evidence your mother made a mistake we all get caught in traffic jams and get upset and are ratty or whatever your mother wasn't yeah. this other man uh, completely lost his head it sounds like completely lost his head now I don't know and you don't know what Ghosts were on his shoulders that day. He could no, have got bad news, not. and we t- we take that into account. But he should at least, in the calm light of day, he should at least apologise. That's Marie on the live line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning, Ryan was musing over events in London and further afield. Uh, Boris Johnson's in a bit of bother, isn't he, over in London? I was watching all of that and listening to a few podcasts on that uh, this morning. Um, and and he is in uh, in big trouble because it's it's interesting. They kind of his, his own MPs did it sort of a dance with the devil. He's very good at winning elections and Brexit and things like that. But then when he gets it, he's a tricky proposition. And they're kind of going, well, where, when he was mayor of London, he was pretty good at pulling together coalitions of, of different uh, thoughts and theories and philosophies. But since Downing Street, not quite getting that uh, gig and act together. And then this uh, Christmas party that they had last year has come back to haunt him. His press secretary, is, uh, one of them at least, his, uh, has uh, fallen on her own sword, as she did yesterday. Allegra, as her name is. Uh, so she's gone. But um, we'll see how that rumbles along. And as you've been hearing uh, Anton Deck seemed to be having a, a nightly pop at him, which is quite unusual for them to go political uh, on on the on the Jungle Show. But such is the mood and the nature of the place. You wouldn't know, but I think he's in a he's in a bit of a bind there now. So we'll watch that one with interest. Meanwhile, over in Finland, uh, their prime minister uh, also caught up. She's thirty six. I don't know if you've seen her. She's she's uh, the prime minister of Finland, and she's one of many. I think they have a, quite a, a number of Nordic uh, women in charge or in cabinet positions, if not running the show basically in Scandinavia 
and she went uh, out clubbing until 4am which in itself is a story <laughs> but not if you're 36 I suppose but herself and her husband went out uh, but the pro- problem was that she had been sent a text to say that she was close contact to a government minister who had tested positive for COVID. She, her story is she left her phone, it was a work phone, and she left that at home when she went clubbing and she brought her personal phone. So we buy into that, we say fair enough. She gets a pass. But she did, she came out and said, look, sorry about that, I should have better used better judgment, should have double checked the guidance given to me, um, sorry for not understanding it. But you know what, everyone, you know, it's... It, there has to be some certain amount of patience with humanity, you know, people making mistakes, if that's what they are, which they seem to be. And, uh, but that's her story over in Finland. And in New Zealand, a member of parliament over there, uh, Julianne Genter, uh, was uh, busy on Sunday morning because she was heavily pregnant and she felt the, um, the, the, the contractions kicking in and she got on her bike and cycled to hospital in labour to get, uh, to get, <laughs> to get sorted out she arrived at the hospital within an hour she gave birth to her baby I mean that is impressive um, you know as they say we have Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, Ardern over there uh, took maternity leave while in office and brought her three month old to a United Nations meeting as she was still breastfeeding and uh, the politician I just mentioned said my contractions weren't that bad when we left at 2am to go to the hospital though they were two or three minutes apart and picking up in intensity by the time we arrived ten minutes later well, she's cycling to the hospital at two, two in the morning. Hmm. Anyway, her, she is the party's spokesperson for transport issues, appropriately enough. Um, her Facebook profile includes the expression, I love my bicycle. But she also cycled to hospital in 2018 to give birth to her firstborn, local media. Yeah, pretty impressive stuff altogether. From the Ryan Tuberty Show, then later Adam Fleming, BBC News Chief Political Correspondent, was talking to Claire Byrne. Adam, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us. I was just saying before the break that, of course, Boris and Carrie Johnson have announced the birth of a baby girl. All of the wags online saying that their ability to distract knows no bounds. Well, I mean, that was the plan long in the gestation, literally, if it was a plan, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Because the the allegation was already there, wasn't it, that this Plan B restrictions that they were announced yesterday in order to distract from the Christmas party. Oh yeah, and that's not just people speculating or conspiracy theorists. That was a Conservative MP, a backbencher in the Houses of Parliament, saying this is a distraction technique to uh, help Boris Johnson with his his po- political woes. Uh, although when you see the scientific data that ministers were presented with on Tuesday about the the infectiousness of the Omicron variant and what that could mean for the National Health Service, you could see why they chose to act yesterday uh, rather than it just being a a political tactic. Mm -hmm. Further trouble for Boris Johnson this morning. The Electoral Commission has fined the Tory party over that redecoration of the Downing Street flat. Yeah, so that was a a redecoration of the flat that was initially paid for by public money, but then was refunded, the public purse was refunded by a donation from a Conservative member of the House of Lords who donated money to the Conservative Party before. Uh, And it was a bit of a sort of tangled web of, of, of money that's taken a little while to untangle but the electoral commission is saying that actually the donation that came from that conservative peer to the conservative party that went on the refurbishment should have been declared as a political donation and it wasn't and so they've been fined uh, tens of thousands of pounds or, or about 18,000 pounds um, as a result of that quite near the upper limit of fines that, that the electoral watchdog can actually uh, fine them But from my reading of the report, it looks like actually Boris Johnson himself may have received a personal donation from this Conservative peer. And I'm 
not sure that has appeared in any registers anywhere. So we're, we're checking that out at the moment to oh. see if actually there's a whole extra chunk of money that suddenly appeared in this, in this very tangled story. Oh, so this is beyond what was used for the refurbishment? No, no, it would be as part of the refurbishment, but it would, it would be money that we hadn't heard of before and okay. it didn't go to the Conservative Party, but went to Boris Johnson personally. But as I said, that, that's just from a cursory reading of the report. We've got, to, we've got to check that out. Interesting. So many problems for him. And his health secretary, Sajid Javid, was on BBC Breakfast earlier today. He was asked why he didn't do any media interviews yesterday because he was supposed to be on this programme yesterday, but he didn't turn up for anything. Um, uh, let's have a listen to his reasoning behind his decision. Uh, because, uh, to be honest, I was upset by that video, the, the video that you would have seen, your viewers would have seen. Uh, I was upset by it. I think a lot of your viewers would have been upset by it. Uh, the Prime Minister was. And, uh, and I felt that the, the, the you, your Prime Minister's team should be given an opportunity to respond, uh, the space and time to respond to that. I'm pleased the Prime Minister has by ordering an investigation. What do you say, Adam? Was it a case of them just letting the dust settle before they had to come out and face the music? I think it's probably a combination of Sajid Javid didn't want to defend what he saw as the indefensible and also just didn't want to get the heat or take the grief. And he decided not to, not to do the interviews yesterday. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a little bit of backstory we have to do here, of course, about what this is all about. Um, so Allegra Stratton was hired last year to be the Prime Minister's uh, public-facing spokesperson. And she was going to do daily news conferences from a new media briefing room that was, that was built in Downing Street. Now, those those briefings never happened in the end but during the process they were doing little rehearsals for them to see how they how, how it would all work and in one of those rehearsals she was asked a question about oh the speculation on twitter that there was a christmas party in downing street in breach of lockdown rules and then she sort of fumbled the answer to that had a bit of a laugh about 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 that and that is why she had to resign and i don't know if you've seen it but her resignation oh, statement she listen, did outside her house everybody here is is talking about the resignation statement adam i'm going to play a clip actually from it she appeared on camera she was utterly broken and in tears let's listen to her my remarks seemed to make light of the rules rules that people were doing everything to obey that was never my intention i will regret those remarks for the rest of my days and now for my profound apologies to all of you at home for them working in government is an immense privilege i tried to do right by you all to behave with civility and decency and act to the high standards you expect of number 10 rightly expect of number 10 can I ask you, Ad, I mean, I assume you know Allegra because she would have worked with you or, or close to you as a colleague working for another organisation. What did you make of that? Oh, and she actually used to work in our office because she was a BBC journalist working on the Newsnight programme on BBC Two in the okay. evenings. So I've shared shared many a water cooler moment with her even even before that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, I, was, I was quite astonished by that clip and it still gets me a bit when I've been hearing it multiple times this morning. Because it's very rare that in the middle of a political scandal, you see somebody being that upset in public. But then it's a reminder, actually, Allegra Stratton isn't a minister. She isn't a politician by kind of training or desire. She is a former TV journalist who became a political advisor um, and then got thrust into the public eye. I mean, well, she, she chose to put herself in the public eye. Um, and yeah, maybe that's why her reaction there is much more emotional than you'd expect from your your average cabinet minister or backbench Tory MP who's having to resign. Adam Fleming from Today with Claire Byrne.
And in the morning, Anne Nolan called Ryan Tiberty. She was talking about her health situation and keeping positive. Hey, well, I'm just, uh, I'm good. I'm, um, I'm attending Vincent's at the moment and uh, um, I'm having uh, treatment up there. And last week when you were looking for people to play the quiz, I was in the hospital and I was ringing in madly trying to get through to you. From Vincent's? But thankfully, yes. On your Vincent's, phone? I just, yes, on my phone. But now I'm home and uh, all is good. Just a bit hoarse, but I'm okay. uh, I'm doing really good. Thank God. I was up on Tuesday this week. Yes. Just home yesterday, so everything is good. And Looking what, forward to Christmas. What are you in for? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um. Oh well, I um. I'm having uh, treatment. I'm having chemo in Vincent's, mm-hmm. and I would have to say that uh, every one of those people who work in those hospitals and work in those. Uh, oncology uh, units are just they're just saints they are just so brilliant they're wonderful they you know they're breaking good news and bad news to people all the time but they're doing it in such a tactful way and uh, they're they're just walking saints and um, I have such admiration for them Mm. they're just brilliant they really are and is the chemo working for you or is I mean I know it's it's terribly uh, well I started I started November last year mm-hmm. and I was on a, a chemo and unfortunately and that didn't work so well so they have started me on a new chemo drug at this stage. Okay. So you know I'm just on it this is my fourth uh, session and uh, I'll be honest please God next June so fingers crossed everything else crossed that it will work and that I'll be I'll be uh, fighting, fighting well again this time next year. Have you been, um, were you working up until the, the cancer came into your life? Well, or? I worked, I, I, yeah, I worked all my life. Uh, Ryan, I worked in, uh, I worked in a bank all my life. And okay. um, I suppose I did get cancer in 2011. And then I was very lucky. I had eight or nine fantastic years. And uh, now it has decided to revisit me again and please God will get through it mm. and I'll have another 20 fantastic years. That's all Sounds I can Sounds like hope, a, you know? a good game plan to me, Anne. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. We have to be positive. Everybody else has been positive so we have to be positive. Is it hard work being positive? I suppose it's hard work being positive all the time but you know what? We have to do it. Um, I think um, every day that we wake up and that we're able to get up and keep going is a good day. You have children. I have. I have two adult children. I'm. I have two adult children. I have a daughter who is in Dublin, uh, Louise, and uh, she's uh, finished college and she's working up in Dublin, and absolutely loves it up there. She was in college in Dublin. Okay. And then I have a son who's just started in college this year. He's down in Waterford. He's doing an agricultural uh, degree down there, and uh, he loves it as well. So we're very lucky. I'm. I'm married here my husband is a farmer and uh, I'm looking out here over the green fields at the moment so yes. you know what it's absolutely fabulous right? and, and uh, stormy, stormy weather in your life or is that uh, did you did sorry you, Ryan did you avoid the storm well actually I was in Dublin on Tuesday oh, yeah. for treatment it wasn't too so bad so we here. went up myself and my fantastic sister-in-law Bridget who has been a fantastic help and supported me all through it um, we went up and we stayed overnight on Monday night and uh, we came back yesterday, so it was lovely. We got up, got I got some treatment. We stayed in a bit of comfort, <laughs> and we were coming home yesterday, saying, "You know what? We feel like we've nearly had a little break, despite the storm and everything else." Amazing, 
I, I'm still trying. I'm still laughing at you on the phone in the hospital in the middle of chemo, trying to get through to a radio show to get to, to, yes. to win well, something. And do you know how many times I rang? No. I rang about forty times. <laughs> You're a determined <laughs> woman, saying, Anne. I, I was saying, oh my God, my bill next month will be bad. <laughs> but anyway, not to worry. You got through, but we 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 had run out of time. Yes, I understand. Yes. So then Ryan started the quiz, and it was all going swimmingly until this question. If you get this wrong. We're out of here. We're I, never talking I again. Finished. You know, you're finished. Uh, so <laughs> let's just see what we can do here. Okay, this is going to be a little clip of a song. And I want you to tell me what rock star is singing on this well-known song with Mr. Bing Crosby. Can it be years from now Perhaps we'll see Let's play this. You know who that is, Anne, don't you? Uh, no. You do. You do. Uh, his name is... How do you describe it? He was a star man, 70s mostly. Uh, he was married to a model called Iman. He died a few years ago. Great style. What do you call it? A thin white duke? I'm giving you everything here. Uh, first name... Uh, okay, so you know the Senator Norris? Yes. What's his first name? Oh, Jesus. Okay, uh, no, definitely not that. Um, it's uh, in, in Israel, you have the star of. Oh, I have a total oh. blank. Uh, Mr. Hasselhoff's first name. Um, I'm trying to think of any other famous. Um, What's his name? Uh, I can see, I can see Senator Norris in front of me now, beard yeah. and all, and I can't think of his name. I know. Um, do me a favor. Yes. Say David Bowie. David it's a correct answer. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> there we go. A very deserving winner there. Anne Nolan from the Ryan Tuberty Show. Now, have you done that thing where you buy the Christmas chocolates, but you eat them in November? Well, I know your chalk shame. I've been there. In the morning, dietitian Louise Reynolds was talking portion control and all those Christmas calorie pitfalls. You know, a lot of good nutrition is about having a good relationship with food and enjoying family occasions, enjoying Christmas. I mean, there's a huge part of Christmas is about food. Um, But it is a good time to think about portion size for general, for our relationship with food, our families, our children. We all want to enjoy foods, but sometimes we need to have a bit of a sense check and say, actually, that's too much. Or now when you go to the supermarket, our portion sizes have got bigger. Foods are coming in much bigger packages. Um, you might buy sharing portions of sweets or crisps, crisps. but actually people aren't sharing them. They're you know, they're <laughs> stuffing them all And it's not, all it's not that they're, they're greedy, but it's just <laughs> that once you have it at home and if the bag is open, you're dipping into it. Yeah. Um, so, and then I think just when it comes to Christmas, we need to be aware selection boxes, tins of, of sweets. I think they've become so accessible they've become oh, so cheap from they've the day after Halloween, Halloween they've yeah. been in the shops and they've been really really cheap yes, and we've been speaking to Donald cheap. O'Shea about this on the programme he, he's very much yeah, well, against I have the to price say, I'm, point I'm really concerned about the price and even the other day I was in the supermarket and there was a special offer a tin of sweets which in my day and I'm not a hundred but we got the tin of it was roses at the time it was made of tin and you got the tin of roses and as far as I know you had one tin in the house kind of over Christmas oh and they were really expensive they were really expensive mm. and they were a big tin and now they they've got smaller but they've also become so cheap and I saw in one of the supermarkets they were on sale for 250 
for a tub of those sweets. And I just feel people are now arriving at everyone's house. They're bringing them, they're giving them, you know, as kind of, oh, that's just drop it into the house. Yeah, or but bringing them into work. <clears throat> yeah, and I know. And anybody working in, if you've ever worked in a hospital, anybody listening will know they're always at the desk. You know, the nurses yeah. and the doctors will have the sweets there. And that's all part of Christmas. That and is can all I ask fine, you now, knowing what you know, were you tempted to buy those at 2.50? Um, well, I was... I you didn't know. Did. No, I tell you what, I did buy them because we were doing, my daughters in school were bringing in for doing a hamper collection for yes. um, St. Vincent de Paul. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, do you know what? Yes, I, I bought them for those. But as I bought them for 250 I just kind of thought this is this is really all wrong. But th- I certainly will have them in my house over Christmas. Absolutely, I yeah. will. And I think any dietitians do eat sweets. We do cook cakes and ba- you know, bake things. But I probably, I think my portion sizes might be smaller. Somebody might come to dinner in my house and think, maybe that's a smaller portion, but I'd always have seconds. I think that's what we need to say. Eat eat that amount, but go back for more. I think if children are growing up with huge plates and the same portion sizes as their parents, that can, you know, they may overeat and you know, Safe Food have done a lot of work around this and they have, you know, looked at plates, how the sizes of our plates have changed, changed over the years as to well. To accommodate all the growth. Yeah, and if anybody has in their cupboard at home, you know, a, a dinner plate maybe from their parents or grandparents, kind of an old dinner service that's still at home, you'll see that the plates have got smaller. Some of the plates now are like platters, mm-hmm. you know, that. And again, you might feel you need to fill that because nobody wants to yeah. seem that they're not generous. That's an old diet trick, isn't it? I remember from way back, you yeah. know, use a smaller use plate. Use a smaller plate. You, you feel use a smaller plate. Well, so I no, had a child come to me do. yesterday right that's at home and say, do. does anyone ever ask Joe Duffy about giving children extra food after dinner. I think Joe Duffy should talk about this. This was the conversation <laughs> I had to deal with yesterday. So I expect to be ringing Liveline a little bit well, later Well, yeah, well, hopefully they're not listening this morning now because they're in school because I'm saying you don't have to finish everything on your plate. So it's not me, it's the plate's fault. Let's hear about the hand now. Will we talk about the hand? Because I know that's a good guide, isn't it, to portion size? Yeah, it is. It is definitely a good guide. And also, if you think that we all have different sized hands. So, you know, a dad's hand is going to be bigger than the child's hand. So it's a good way to have a look and see, you know, in terms of your protein, if you're having a piece of chicken or fish, the palm of the hand is what we tend to talk about in terms of portion size. So the si- the portion of a child's hand is going to be smaller. Um, things like then, you know, a, a handful. Again, a child's handful is going to be smaller. So we're not obviously putting our hand into the food but as a parent if you're trying to gauge how much of a particular food so things like um you know pasta for example would be around a handful would be sort of one serving but if you're someone a that's child's very active, handful of pasta well that would be but if a child is very active you know they might have two to three servings would be the recommendation okay you know so it doesn't mean that's all you'd have mm-hmm. but if you're trying to work out how many servings am i having of the carbohydrate food or whatever in the day and um, things like you know for cheese and um Things like yogurt, for example, is easy a, per, a portion. It comes in a portion size. Um, for but we eggs, spoke before about sugar in yogurt, so we have to watch which, out. Yeah, for that. but at the same time, we need to. We also need to enjoy food. You know, we need yeah. to kind of. I don't get that anxious about you know, but I just don't buy the yogurts. And I know you were speaking about the yogurts earlier. You know, and we all have our favourites in the house, and some people are missing yogurts at the moment that they can't get. But it's not going for the ones that are really designed to attract children with a lot of sugar. Mm-hmm. But after that, you know, and we all know the ones that are you can tell. Yes, you, you can tell exactly, shop, exactly. They're so loaded. they're kind of already pre-portioned, but it's it's kind of an idea just to look at a hand, and I think that reminds people children and adults don't need the same portion size. Dietitian Louise Reynolds from today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, more extraordinary life stories. Lucia Fitzgerald told Joe about running away from Ireland as a young teenager. I was around fifth 
14 or 15, something like that. Wow. Yes. You've been born in Bessborough, the was, mother baby home. Yeah. And did you know who your parents were? No idea. I had no idea at the time, no. And when you ran away at 14... Yeah. ...which is, what, 50, 60 years ago... Yeah, that's you, right. You were... Where, 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 how did you know where you were going? Well, the thing was, you see, uh, what what uh, prompted me to run away was uh, that um, I thought uh, that my parents were my parents and they weren't, they were my grandparents. Ah. So I'd been lied to all those years and I got a terrible shock when I found uh, my birth certificate in a drawer uh, that I wasn't supposed to be nosy and in. And um, so I got an awful shock. Yeah. And um, I decided uh, to, um, well, that wasn't the decision that made me actually run away. It was that Mm -hmm. I confronted my grandmother with it. And then she started talking to me about a letter that had been found in my school bag, all the rest of it, and that... And that I probably will have to go into an institution because uh, um, I'm I'm not normal. I didn't know what she was talking about, but she was what she was really talking about was the fact that I was gay, and I didn't know I was gay at the time, if you understand me. Of course, yeah. So you know, I thought to myself, rather because I knew what those places were like, because some kids I went to school with ended up in them. Mm-hmm. We'd never seen them again, and that was one of the just one of the reasons. So there was about three or four different. Okay. Reasons. So but, you see, so you found your birth cert. You realise your mother was your granny. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, yes. Which has happened so often. Yes. You said to your your granny, your mammy. Yep. Uh, did you ask her, who is my mammy? I didn't. I was afraid of my life for her because okay. in them days you didn't challenge yeah, okay. people that grew up, say, with very Victorian ideas. Are you with me? Yeah, of course I am. My life of her, Joe, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I loved her on one side, but on the other side I was afraid of my life yeah. for her because... Uh, you know, she was uh, like a street angel and a, and, and a house devil, so to speak. Yeah. So when you said to her, "I know I'm, I, I know you're not my mammy," mm. and she said, "Well, hang on, what's what's this what's this letter I found in the school bag?" That was her reply. Basically, no. that was her. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm getting out. What that's happened it. was that was a different story. That was okay. a, it broke the camel's back, so to speak. But ah, yeah. Long, but not long before that was when I found the birth certificate. Okay, and she found a letter in your bag. Yeah, so now I, was, I wasn't the person I was supposed to be, and the next thing, I'm, I'm this lesbian, and that I need to be put into uh, some sort of an asylum somewhere. So good God, good God. A shock. I'd never, I didn't know what a lesbian was. I wasn't interested in, in sex or anything else. Yeah. But I was being accused of it um, because of this letter from a friend of mine telling mm. me love me, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. Two young kids, for goodness sake. Two na- teenagers, yeah. Teenagers, yes. So, so you decided to run away. I decided to run away and uh, and and look for my birth mother, and I and I found her. And uh, basically speaking, uh, in uh, in all honesty, I I I couldn't stay there either because I felt yeah. terribly uncomfortable. Okay. And away from home and lonely and in a strange strange uh, country. So I walked out of there for uh, personal reasons that I won't disclose. Okay. Thought I better I better get out of here. But at fourteen, how did you get to England? Uh, I took uh, I took some money out of the drawer that okay. my mother used to keep as emergency money. Yeah, well, it was an emergency. And, and I made myself I went got up myself uh, up to Dublin. Yeah. Um. Um. um and um, I got on the boat. And they asked me, you know, where was your parent? And I said, they're coming up with the, the things in a minute. They'll be up. I'm just going in. They left me straight in. Okay. 
So, um, and then I um, I went and I found my, my uh, birth mother and that was it. And Lucia told Joe about landing in Liverpool with nowhere to go. I right. landed in Liverpool. Liverpool, OK. And where did you go next? I went uh, to find uh, my birth mother. So you had an address? Didn't stay there very long and then oh, I hit okay. streets of Manchester after that. I, I thought, I'm better off out on my own, you know, because everything but around what? me is a lie. But Lucia, what age were you when you were in Manchester on your own? God, love, I was only something like 15, coming up to 16, and I was living on the streets. I thought I'd rather be on the streets and just walk the streets than ha- have to put up with, you know, people telling me who I am, what I am, mm. and, and that I'm going to be put away and that I'm no good and I'm this and I'm that. Um, so, you know, and all this was just be- because of my mother having me when she was young and me br- brought into the world in a Magdalene home, you know, so you couldn't make yeah. it up. It was like stigma that you, you just couldn't believe. So you're now 15 and you're homeless in Manchester. Yes, and I'm out from... there on the streets and I met loads of other Irish kids on the streets for very similar reasons and we all kind of hung out together and stuck okay. together. And we used to all go up to the local um, uh, uh, gay pub of the night and we'd sit outside watching them all going in and out because we felt safe sat there, you know. Yeah. And uh, we, we, um, we, we just kept ourselves well and clean and um, got ourselves little uh, washing-up jobs in the day, and that's how we survived and, and, and went mm-hmm. into the local uh, toilets to wash our clothes and stuff like that. And we just kept ourselves going all the time because one thing that uh, kept me going was that I thought, I'm not going to be sent back to Ireland in a coffin. Are you with me? I yeah. am not going to be. And that was what drove me, don't go back, because then, you see, I would have turned out the, uh, the person that uh, I was being predicted to be, which was this awful person. That was now a lesbian, and and that they uh, took in, and um, and and reared, and this was me. Thanks. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, I was only a child; I had no idea what was going on. But the idea of going into another one of those homes because I'd had smacks of uh, uh, things, uh, of corridors and nuns and beads, and I was afraid of my life of them all. And Lucia, when did when did you or when did you come in contact with the social services in Manchester? Well, uh, what happened was I was going home one night uh, okay. to a place where I could, uh, what do you call it, uh, sofa surf. Yeah. And um, I, there was a bike on the side of the road and I sure I got up on it the same as you, anyone would. Yeah, yeah. And the police pulled in behind me. Uh. And that was it. And then they realised I was, um, I was uh, underage. And so they told me that um, I'd uh, be put in touch with a social worker. Okay. Anyway, they sent a social worker. The social worker found out I was gay. I told her I was gay. I said, and yeah. I don't want to go back to Ireland. I don't want to do this. And she said, right. So she said, well, what I'm going to do, she said, is this. She said, uh, I'm going to um, uh, send you to see a psychiatrist, she said, and see what he has to say. Because he, she said, "This, you're you're obviously upset uh, because you're, and this is what's mm-hmm. all the problems. And I said, there isn't a problem. And she said, well, you were arrested. And I said, I was only, you know, oh, jumped on a bicycle, yeah. didn't do anything wrong. When I went to court, there was 47 charges against me. I didn't know what was going on. Oh, my God. The next minute, I was sat in front of a psychiatrist. Okay. And told that um, she, she recommended that I go and see a psychiatrist. There wasn't a thing wrong with me. I was only a child, ignorant of that. Yeah. And um, they uh, basically, um, the psychiatrist was saying to me that... Um, I believe you're you're a lesbian. I didn't. I didn't know that was the first time I'd ever heard the word lesbian. I said, "What's a what's a lesbian? What okay. is it?" Because we were all called queers in them days. Oh God, yeah. And yeah. anyway, to cut another long story short, yeah. he wanted to send me for lobotomy. Oh, I ran out. A lobotomy. Yep, and the lobotomy. I ran out of it. I said, "What's that?" I didn't even know what it was. 
and Lucia spoke about one night in the 60s that changed her life. When I was sitting in the club one night, just up on a stool, mm. and I overheard three people uh, talking at a table, three women, about the fact that it was horrible what was happening to gay people. Mm. They were talking about starting this thing called GLF, and I, I thought what they were saying was actually quite good, so I said, do you mind if I join your conversation? OK, this? well done. And I sat down at the table and I said, what's GLF? And they said, Gay Liberation Front. And I said, what does that mean? And they were talking about the government. I said, I know nothing about the government. Yeah. They were going on about MPs. And I said, what's an MP? I didn't know what an MP was. Okay. Not. Oh, I said, I'm really interested. I said, could I join your little group? And they said, yes. And that's when my whole life turned around at the, the idea that we could actually change everything. Incredible. And what, what did you do in the Gay Liberation Front in Manchester in the early 60s? Well, what we did in the G, we had loads of meetings. They were called consciousness raising meetings, okay. meaning look at ourselves and yeah. how other people become gay and are gay, and how the system is treating us, and whether it's legal or not legal, is it bullying or is what the hell is it? And then we started to get because I started becoming more and more political with this group of women, etc., yeah. etc., et and there was lads as well. And so we recognised with the lads that they had a different issue uh, with the state to us um, because we were oppressed as women as well mm-hmm. as Indians. Okay. We said that we'll fight our own battle and the lads went off and fought theirs. But we never kind of split, if you will, because we were all good old of friends. Of course, yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's when, when um, I became uh, an activist. Yeah. And the more I learned about society, the angrier I got and how unfair I thought society in general was to people and um, I thought you know this is basically what I want to do and so everything I, I we looked around myself and my best friend still today after all these years as the woman that um, I, I, I heard overheard at the table uh, we created uh, the second women's aid in Manchester we created the first women's uh, print and press ever ever in Manchester and uh, it went on and on and on and everything. And we created a women's mm-hmm. centre where women with children could come late at night if they were having problems with a, a husband that was irate or, or battering them and stuff like that. Yeah, and it yeah. On and on and on. And I've never stopped. And I, everything I looked at, I thought, right, we could do with this, we could do with that. Are you with me? And I never stopped. Mm. And you opened a, a women's refuge in the 60s. Would that be the 60s? It was, yes, yeah, Even though you're still quite... 70s. It was the early qu- 70s when okay. we opened up the women's centre, yes. Which, which must have been one of the first on these islands. It was, yes. Uh, it was. Uh, I think it was anyway. We don't okay. know and we never look back to find out because uh, it was that busy. We ran phone lines and helplines and everything. Um, you know, so, you know... To, so people could come and get shelter or at least be referred on or get a little bit of support. We had police and everybody coming to the door late at night with women streaming in blood after their husbands had beat them. Clutched there in the pouring rain with little kids hugging them, you know. And you, How could you turn them away? So we needed to open up a refuge. And that's basically what we did, Joe. We opened up. We went up and kicked the door in the big Victorian house and then I got in touch with the council. And I said, mm-hmm. Jenny, can't you come down? I said, there was a few of us there. Uh, is there any chance you could come down and perhaps think about looking at uh, opening up a refuge here in, in the town because we're, we're getting all these women through the women's centre and there's no place to put them and the police can't stack the jails with them every night like they're doing, you know, and the children are frightened and jailed, yeah. didn't want to know. So anyways, we thought, OK, well, so what we did then was we called in the TVs and the newspapers and everybody else and a woman mm-hmm. came forward, bought the house for us 
and um, we formed a, a women's aid like limited for the first time here in, in, in Manchester. And then, of course, we'd already started a women's press, so we had to go back to work in there, myself and Angela. And when we, we got um, people uh, and grants mm-hmm. and everything else uh, to uh, subsidise uh, women workers there. Well, that's just a bit of that conversation there. The fascinating life of Lucia Fitzgerald from The Live Line with Joe Duffy. Now, I used to kill plants regularly, but since the lockdown, I've mostly been keeping them alive. And in the morning, Keen Funge of Clay Plants was talking to plant killer Claire Byrne. You're in the presence now of an expert plant killer. <laughs> so you have your work cut out for you. What are the sturdy ones that at this time of year are popular or that you'd recommend? So this time of year, generally speaking, a lot of the plants that we tend to see leaving the studio is the sort of succulent and succulent-like houseplants. These houseplants tend to be very easygoing. They tend to have minimal care requirements. Being succulents, they absorb a lot of water into their stems and into their leaves, which means they can hold on to that water during periods of drought. So it means into the summer months now, when it gets a little bit warmer later on, you've had your plants a couple of months, mm-hmm. you don't have to be worried, too worried about going away on holidays so, so and drying it. The succulent ones, I was taking a look at them this morning, they're, they're dense and sturdy looking. You know, a lot they, of them are. They, they seem as though you couldn't do too much harm to them. This is it, exactly. That's good news. The lovely thing about succulents though is they come in so many varieties. A lot of the times when we imagine a succulent, we think of quite a small, almost cactus-like form of a plant, where in actual fact, succulents come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. One of our favourite examples is a ZZ plant. Is that the one you have there? This is it, exactly. So it's got these gorgeous towering stems with this lovely glossy green foliage. And the stunning thing about this particular plant is it'll continue to produce these little individual stems as it gets that little bit bigger. Always green, is it? Always green with that particular one. There is a variety called the Black Raven's Easy, which has a much darker colour. It's a little bit harder to come by, but it's again another very popular one. So the succulent plants then, what sort of looking after the, do they need at this time of the year in particular? The lovely thing about succulent plants is their care requirements are relatively minimal. Generally oh good, speaking, I like to hear that. Exactly, this is it. <laughs> Generally speaking, they're very, very robust and they're very, very adaptable as well. Succulent plants require minimal watering because they're used to that very arid climate that they originate in it means that they're used to very very dry very um very almost dusty soil as well so a lot of the times when we're caring for our houseplants particularly into the winter we sort of are wandering around we're looking at them going oh that that looks very very dry when it, when it comes to a succulent plant we're happy with that that's what we want in particular this time of year the biggest mistake people tend to make is they actually tend to try and overdo it they try and compensate for those slightly darker days those longer nights by giving more water more feed when in actual fact it's sort of time to take a little bit of a step back from our plants mm-hmm. so even the ones that aren't succulents they need less water would you say and less feed at this time of year. Exactly, that's it. That little bit less light means our plants are using a lot less water during the day. So they're not using that water to produce new growth. They're not using it as as readily as it would be before. Mm-hmm. As well as that, generally speaking, our homes can sometimes be a little bit, uh, a little bit less warm at particular times during the day. So we're losing less water from the compost through just evaporation as well. So what if you're not a total beginner then and you don't mind a little bit of maintenance? What's the next level? So the next step up is things like trailing houseplants. Again, they're still relatively beginner friendly, but they open up a couple more doors in terms of different ways that you can grow them. One of the examples here is the satin pothos. These guys are stunning. They've got this lovely silver variegation on the leaf, so they've got a gorgeous pattern to them. And what these guys do is they'll start to trail down, so you can pop them up on bookcases or on shelves, on top of the fridge and what they'll do is they'll trail down and create this lovely effect. The lovely thing about plants like these is they're very accessible for people who want to go down some of the slightly more nuanced aspects of of Mm -hmm. plant care. Things like propagation for example, these guys are a great way to start with something like that. So what you can do is you can just take little cuttings of these guys' stems, 
remove some of the lower leaves, pop them into a little vat of water and over a couple of weeks it'll start to produce roots and you'll get a whole new plant that you can keep for yourself or you can give to a friend. Or mm-hmm. People are, you know, as, as Instagram has grown in popularity, people are very much influenced by Definitely. plants that look glamorous, you know, exactly. they've become a part of interior design. Have you found that? This is it, yeah, 100%. We've we found in particular that influence of Instagram and TikTok has been massive in terms of the growth of, of, of plant ownership here in Ireland in particular. It's been, a, it's been a big trend in the US for quite a long time and we're starting to catch up over here now and for, for so many years plants like fiddly figs which is such an iconic house plant have played such a massive role in interior design particularly in the early 2000s and we're now starting to see that in Irish design as well we're always hearing from interior designers who are looking to to try and pick out a couple of plants for a client or for, for a friend as maybe as a gift for example and fiddly figs for example are a huge one that have been so popular in, mm. in the last couple and of years and there are a few more that uh, you want to mention and just to let people know we'll put a full list up on our website of the ones you're recommending today Kian, uh, rte.ie forward slash today CB, take us through some of the other ones that you like. The Chinese money plant. Chinese money plants are gorgeous. They're so, so bizarre. I don't actually have one in here with me today, but they have this amazing central stem and these large, almost disc-like leaves. They have so many different nicknames based on these little leaves. UFO plant, pancake plant, and then another one is it's called the friendship plant. And the, the reason it's called a friendship plant is it produces these little offsets or pups. And the gorgeous thing about this plant is a lot like the trailing plants, it's a really easy gateway into the world of propagation. These plants have this amazing story from back in the 1900s where they were sent back to, a, to uh, I believe it was Scandinavia, by a, a missionary. And for years, they didn't know what this particular plant was. And it eventually managed to spread right the way across Scandinavia into Europe and into to London in particular, where it just took off because of this ease of propagation. It's amazing how that happens, isn't it? It's, it's phenomenal. It just happened from nowhere. I have one of those Chinese money plants and love it. Could listen to plant talk all day. That's Kian Funge of Clay Plants from Today with Claire Byrne. And after Ryan spoke to hotelier John Brennan about his dyslexia, lots of people got in contact to share their stories. Uh, let me go to a, a, an email to ryan at rte.ie, which says, I am the queen of dyslexics, which is, I've never met them, your majesty. Uh, and I come from a large family. And within our extended family, there are 32 members diagnosed with dyslexia. 32. And 15 of them with ADD and a further 12 with combined ASD diagnoses, all doing academically very well, all fully accepting of their diagnoses. I also worked as a teacher for over 20 years, supporting students with a range of disabilities. I've done all the degrees, master's, special ed and uh, disability training one could do. All other benefits, however, the greatest advice I got and give was from my mother, Lord Rester. When I started secondary school, I couldn't read a word. Uh, back in the 60s, no one had an idea about dyslexia. My mother said to a teacher once who was moaning about the fact that I couldn't read or spell, best not to focus on what she can't do. She must focus on what she can do. She's a very bright, intelligent girl uh, with a great memory and a free spirit. And she has siblings who can read and they'll read the books to her and she'll be very knowledgeable. You'll see. She then said to me, uh, never worry or apologise for what you cannot do. Just get someone who can do it. If you try to do everything yourself, you are limited to your own ability. If you reach out and accept help, your world is unlimited. So she just told me to be kind to those who don't understand that everyone isn't a reader, just as everyone can't do maths and everyone isn't an artist and everyone doesn't have insight. That's life. When children with dyslexia struggle, the most important thing to focus on is their confidence and they will learn to read when it makes 
sense to them. People with dyslexia need the confidence to make a mistake, to ask for help with proofreading, etc. Everyone with dyslexia says our correspondent is different. Some are academically bright, some are not. Some think outside the box, some do not. Acceptance is a great assist. And that from from a comfortable dyslexia. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm so against the Leaving Cert as it stands, because it forces you into uh, topics and subjects that are of absolutely no interest to you. You might have no ability in and you're wasting your time with them because the reality is that you have this great talent for other subjects. And if you just focused on those and let somebody, let your mind expand there comfortably and with great intelligence and interest and curiosity rather than being force-fed subjects that are just crippling you in terms of your confidence and your uh, ability, uh, you'd have a much better uh, exam system says he from his throne of knowledge. It's just a, a, a shoot from the couch, but that's how I feel about that. From the Ryan Tuberty Show. Now, in September, we were seeing footage of the fire at the Glenisk yoghurt production factory in Offaly. Reporter Evelyn O'Rourke was back at the plant and she was talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. Well, the fire occurred on a Monday on the 27th of September and it started at that plant, which is located just outside Tullamore near Newtown in County Offaly. And they tell me now that the day started off as a regular day at the plant, a busy day with around 50 of the 90 strong staff there. And talking to everybody there now, it seems to have happened kind of very quickly. The alarm was raised just after 11am and it started around the yoghurt manufacturing area and this caused huge disruption to their production and since then they've only been able to produce milk which is on cream and products like that but that's really only about 10% of their overall production so you get a sense of the, the disruption there and there's no definite conclusion yet to the cause of the fire with assessors still working on their investigations. Now you went to visit the plant in Offaly, you met as I said some of the Cleary family to find out how they're getting on. People will remember because we all saw those pictures on the news of how devastating that fire was. What do you see now when you arrive at the plant? It's quite sobering because you're driving along, you know, following the map along this beautiful, tranquil, quiet country road and then suddenly you see this burnt out shell as the managing director, Vincent Cleary, describes it. And the most badly damaged section of, of the plant really is there right at the side of the road. I have a little video of it we'll be on our Twitter feed shortly. But there's something very poignant about it because that Glenisk sign, which we all know so well, is just there kind of a little bit burnt and worn looking beside the burnt out section there. And it looks like a set from a movie, to be honest. Much of the steel fixtures fixtures have rusted over. They are keen of course to demolish it once they get full clearance from the insurance assessment. But here I'll get a little reminder of the news from the day of the fire and then Managing Director Vincent Cleary gives me the tour of the plant and how it looks now. Completely gutted. The full impact of the fire now evident. It swept through the Glenask manufacturing facility around midday yesterday. I stuck my head in earlier and it's, uh, it's unrecognisable. I mean it's not the factory I knew the reality it just hasn't sunk in yet. Yeah, it's gutted. It's gone. So, Emergency services battled the blaze for hours. Finally, So Vincent, I was coming to see you and I wasn't sure where I was going and then I suddenly stopped and I saw sight and I knew exactly where I was. It's quite yeah. shocking, isn't it, when you look? Yeah, it's it dismal looking. The sooner we can demolish it, it'll bring a certain amount of closure to the whole affair. It's like the remains of post-war event. At this stage, the machinery is rusted because it's, 
exposed to the elements. And what should be here? Like, what should I be looking at? Needless to say, we shouldn't be able to see into the building. There should be a wall here in front of us. And if we were inside, it would be a series of different rooms. That was probably one of our shortcomings because a lot of these rooms or walls were made from timber and PVC because they needed to be wipeable and they were fueled to the fire. So, so at this point, looking at the site, this fire is still being investigated and being assessed? Still, yes, our insurance company are still trying to find out 100%. That's Vincent Cleary and he's the managing director of of Glenisk and Evelyn it's a real family business and you spoke to another member of the Clearies about the impact of the fire on them. That's right Claire. I also met Vincent's younger brother Mark there and he told me that there are 14 Cleary siblings he's the youngest I think and that the factory's roots grew out of their farmer dad Jack Cleary's decision to establish Tullamore Dairies on his farm almost 40 years later there are six members I think with the 14 siblings involved and it's a real community business with so many locals having worked there for years so the impact of the fire has been really felt right throughout the community but here Mark tells me more about the impact of the fire and how touched the family have been by the generous support they've received. Well, this is our temporary plan that we hope to have operational by January. This will be our clean room where all our production, all the incubation will take place. We will pack our yoghurt here and our cold storage here beside us. So that's what's on the plan for next month anyway. And has it been exhausting, the whole thing, I imagine? It has. It's been not a headache. Yeah, look, I mean, you go through so many emotions every day, but we've got great support from everybody onwards and upwards from here on. So the plan then is what? That you have a kind of a temporary version of what you had before while you get on with the bigger plans when you've sorted out the demolition? Exactly, yes. I mean, this will be a mini version of our old Linisk. It'll get us going for the first number of months of next year and the bigger picture is the new plant, which would be some, some part of next year, hopefully. And, I mean, our name is synonymous in people's household and something like this it just makes you realize basically how much support we have out there it's up to us now to get the product back on the shelf and uh, satisfy our customers again describe that support to me then because i mean i know vincent said it at the time but how did people show it oh i think the phone was red that evening even for next month there's people i went to school i haven't heard from in years and they were getting in contact with me and even the local village there wanted to provide services and anything that we needed they were willing to come down and help us it was overwhelming and it still is and you probably heard my voice there as well because it was very emotional i heard charlie bird on the radio a few weeks ago and he was saying there's other people out there worse off than us and it was kind of something that kind of twigged in me as well there are people worse off than us but the amount of support it gave us the strength basically to get up and go again basically and what the people went we like what you do we appreciate what you do i got two letters from two seven-year-olds one in mayo and one in leash they were just so saddened and it was just like it's amazing like it's overwhelming and it is to this day the suppliers that we're with i mean everybody has just been terrific evelyn our works report from today with claire barn and that's it for playback daily so mind yourself till next time